So why crypto? So why crypto? So why crypto? Featuring Vishal and Quay. Welcome to another edition of So Why Crypto, a, pro- a podcast where we look at crypto as technology. This is Vishal, co-host. My name is Quay. Today we're focusing on smart contracts. Why do we want to understand more about smart contracts? So we continue to bring you the experts in the crypto space. So why community? We'd like to welcome the founder of the European Crypto Initiative and the crypto lawyer, Florian Glass. We're excited to have you on So Why Crypto today. Thank you for coming. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation and excited to dive deeper into this topic. So would love for you just to give a little background about yourself. Sure. So um, I'm based in Europe. I'm originally German, currently living in Lisbon in Portugal, which has become a really vibrant hub for the crypto community over the past few years. And I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying the good weather there. Um, I'm by trade a lawyer. So uh, I studied law in Germany. I became a member of the bar uh, there. And um, <clears throat> I've been a crypto lawyer since my first day of uh, being allowed to officially practice the law. So the timing was pretty good on this one. Uh, that was in 2014. And um, yeah, if I'm not lawyering, I'm building a Web3 social network called Common Ground. Uh, It's basically uh, a platform for Web3 communities to interact uh, with one another, but also with smart contracts. So actually making Web3 and crypto tangible and giving communities superpowers. So that's my range of work from Advocate, advocacy in the European Crypto Initiative to actually building products uh, for people in Web3. So I tried to cover the whole range. And before I became a lawyer, actually, I was a software developer for many, many years. Uh, I started as a young kid um, with web development. There was, let's say, late stage Web1. So there was around 2000. Um, when I discovered that uh, uh, writing HTML and uploading it on an FTP server allows you to publish content on the internet that was incredibly empowering as a kid. And so I nerded out on how to build better and better websites. And um, I've done this, you know, as a, as a student and uh, enjoyed it in my free time ever since. The web two came around, which changed a lot how you build applications. Facebook became a thing famously, which changed how you publish content on the internet. And now I'm deeply, deeply involved in web three, which again changes how we interact with one another on the web. Um, I think in particular, it touches upon the concept of identity, touches upon the concept of online payments and money in general. So it's uh, the web, in a sense, you could say, is my life. And um, it's just so fascinating. Of course, now also with AI taking all the content of the web and turning it again into something else, something resembling a super intelligence. So, yeah, I'm pretty happy that I ended up in this broader sort of web and Internet space because it seems to be the one of the most interesting sort of areas to be involved in. Um, over my lifetime, really. Yeah, it's an exciting time right now. We remember the first time we 
jumped into crypto. So I have to ask you, um, do you remember remember the exact date when you were crypto field? Uh, it happened in stages. Uh, first time was in 2010. I was building a prediction market as a Facebook app back then. Back then in 2010, uh, people were building apps for Facebook. There was this uh, famous game from Zynga, something with uh, farming. I remember, I don't remember the name, but some stupid game on Facebook where you could play, you know, some sort of farming stuff. And um, back then I had an idea with, a, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and back then I had an idea with a friend to build sort of like a betting app where you could bet on the outcome of almost any event. And we realized, well, if a lot of people do this, it sort of becomes a prediction of the future. Uh, today we call this prediction market. Back then I didn't even know the concept. We just found the idea fascinating. And when we had uh, almost finished the app, we were thinking about how to actually bring real money into the, this sort of betting. And we realized, okay, to do this legally, we either need a license to offer essentially gambling, or we could potentially do it with a new kind of money. And our developer back then introduced me to the concept of Bitcoin, which was very, very new at the time. It had mm -hmm. maybe just launched less than a year ago. And I have to admit that I've never in my life had thought about the nature of money, uh, what money actually is. And so when I was first introduced to the concept of Bitcoin back then, I just didn't understand its fundamental value and utility. So we didn't end up uh, going with Bitcoin, uh, which I regret to this day because that would have made me very OG, I think. <laughs> But then um, it stayed in my head and I followed its development. And uh, in 2012, 2013, sort of in this time frame, um, I got more interested in it. There was much more sort of a narrative on it. There was much more happening. Uh, there was Mt. Gox. Suddenly there was an exchange where you could trade Bitcoin for the first time. Bitcoin had a market value suddenly. I remember in 2012 or 13, it rose to about $1,000 per Bitcoin, which was incredible, um, it, which produced the first Bitcoin billionaires already back then. And uh, at that time, I was like, okay, shit, I need to get me some Bitcoins. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I really got um, into that element of it. And um, I was also at the time really deeply thinking about um, innovation in law Uh, with technology. Um, I was about to finish my, my legal education. Um, I had done my university degree. I was in the midst of my legal clerkship, which is a requirement to become a member of the bar. I was like serving at the courts and at the prosecutor's office and public administration, those sorts of things. And uh, in my free time, I was researching what, what would actually be possible to make the law more technology driven to ultimately actually turn the law into software. And that's when I um, became more interested in the underlying technology behind Bitcoin, the blockchain. And it was also around the time when Ethereum, um, not launched, but sort of became a topic of conversation. Um, uh, Vitalik Buterin published uh, his original white paper uh, and then Gavin Wood published the yellow paper And then it sort of became a project and the narrative of Ethereum was extremely fascinating from day one because they really took this concept of a blockchain and turned it into much, much more than just money. Um, not saying that Bitcoin didn't do something amazing, but Ethereum definitely took the concept 
to a whole different level. And that's when my sort of lawyer brain and my technology brain just, you know, fused together. And I realized that this technology was the missing piece for a fundamental uh, change in how the law could work and how contracts in particular, so agreements between people could be fundamentally turned into executable software as opposed to ink on dead trees, right? And so uh, that's how I got really into this thing. And I remember saying in 2012 to a friend, I think I will do this exclusively at least for the next 10 years. And these 10 years have passed now and um, there is no end in sight. It just gets more exciting to be in this space. So those are my origins. Yeah, yeah certainly a lot of layers to this at all. Like when you start looking into it, uh, whether it's Bitcoin or smart contracts, you're like, you think you got it. And you're like, oh my God, there's another thing, another thing. So awesome. Thanks for that, that background. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> just an onion and we're just peeling layers. Um, so wanted to talk to you about um, transforming, sorry, transformation technology. And so humanity has had many uh, transformational technologies like fire, electricity, and the internet. And these technologies have allowed humans to do better things. Um, I wanted to see what are your thoughts on crypto being, you know, transformational for humans? What are your thoughts on that? I do think it is very transformational and it's transformational, I think, in the area of coordination. So I think fire, uh, if you want to take that as a fundamental innovation, was, uh, was revolutionary because it allowed people to be more resilient. Uh, they could, you know, prepare better food. They could keep themselves warm even when it was cold outside, those sorts of things. And um, I think... The blockchain um, can be more likened to something like the invention of writing, right? Uh, those are the invention of money. So it's a coordination tool that allows people to work together on a common goal in a large group of people. And um, it obviously touches the law in many ways because the law regulates exactly this kind of behavior, among other things. And um, so, yeah, I, it's, it's sort of in this tradition of coordination tools, I would say. Good, good, good. So <clears throat> I want to talk about crypto space in general. So there's many ways people look at it. Some, some people say crypto is a second coming of money. Some say it's a scam, right? Uh, we think of our homework has been, you know, it's, it's another option for store of value at medium exchange for people. Um, as of now, Bitcoin has emerged as a leader in the crypto space for store of value. You got the 500 million billion uh, market cap there. And then, you know, that's alternative to gold, real estate, art. And Ethereum is a medium exchange. You know, I used to work in Visa MasterCard in that space. I, I think as a potential to disrupt that or at least take a big chunk out of Visa MasterCard transactions. Uh, and disrupting other things like eBay, Amazon, other things, uh, online commerce. Uh, where do you stand as far as crypto as an, you know being an alternative to store of value and medium exchange? Have you thought about that? In terms of store of value, um, I can definitely see that Bitcoin could become this long term. 
I think it already serves this purpose for a certain demographic, uh, in particular people that live in high inflation countries or um, areas with a high level of political instability. Uh, I'm thinking of Argentina, for example, who has been suffering from rampant uh, inflation now for decades. Mm -hmm. And it's no coincidence that the Argentinian crypto community is probably among the strongest, most advanced, most sophisticated communities in the whole crypto space. Um, they've been behind some of the most important projects um, in the space, um, just to name a few, a few Open Zeppelin, for example, uh, which is uh, a repository of smart contracts that are standardized, that are audited, that are very secure. And um, the team behind it is from Argentina and everybody in the space uses their technology, even if they don't know it. They are very foundational to, to, the, uh, to, the, to the space. Uh, so getting back to your question, um, yeah, I think that uh, the store of value element is real um, and it's partially fulfilled already, as I said. In terms of medium of exchange, I think that's even more obvious that this is where it's going. Um, we already see that stable coins are one of the most successful innovations so far in, in, in this broader blockchain field. Um, we've recently heard or seen that even the United Nations are sending support to Ukrainian refugees in the form of stable coins because it's a bank independent form of digital money that is still tied to, in this case, the US dollar, which is a relatively stable, or has been in the past, a relatively stable currency. So there is massive utility in this medium of exchange aspect. What we haven't really seen yet, which is sort of this missing piece to the puzzle, is the scalability element. So today we would not be able to support this vast volume of transactions that you know MasterCard or Visa are supporting on a traditional blockchain. By traditional, I mean something like Ethereum. Um, the really smart people, to which I do not count, are solving this problem um, with technical innovations like layer twos and even layer threes. Um, but then also there are new approaches to layer ones um, that are fundamentally faster and can support a higher load of transactions per unit of time. And at some point, one of these will be technologically mature enough to support the whole world transacting through it. I'm pretty sure of this. So, yeah, I think the medium of exchange narrative and vision is definitely going to come to pass pretty sure yeah it just takes time i think that's one of the things that we we've been talking to guests it's it's builders are building people are getting educated it takes time for adoption and it's it's going to keep on coming and i think <clears throat> things like that happen in ukraine argentina you're explaining also move the adoption forward because it's a real pain they need to get it done uh versus if you're in the u.s you know there's not a lot of pain the, the government's much more stable uh, so anyhow, uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about, we, we bring up with every guest. Um, so you hear from people, everything in the future will go through Bitcoin. You know, you got the Bitcoin maximalist, right? You got like, everything is going to go through Bitcoin. And then you have like, well, no, there's got to be room for other things. The smart contracts coming from Ethereum, Solana, all these other things that we haven't even seen yet. 
Where do you stand as far as the future being just single chain, whether it's Bitcoin, Ethereum, or, or one, uh, or it's going to be multi-chain, it's going to be a bunch of different solutions that are going to be coming in? Um, I have a hard time imagining that there will be just a single chain in the future. Um, already in this sort of small space that we are still with a few million people, we can't agree on a single chain. Why would we be able to agree on a single chain if it's 8 billion people using it or 10 or 15 billion people using it? I find this hard to believe. So no, I don't think we're going towards a single chain future. Uh, no disrespect to Bitcoin maximalists. They are a funny breed of people um, yeah. and every community needs, needs its people who deeply, deeply believe in it. Uh, but there's definitely room for Bitcoin without it being the single chain through which everything goes. And so, um, yeah, I think the future will be diverse and diversity means resiliency. And that is a good thing. So um, I think what's currently happening and it's been happening for a few years is this idea of the internet of blockchains. So this sort of interconnection between chains. I would say the leading ecosystem here is in a sense the Cosmos ecosystem because they've spent years in building a protocol and the implementations for making this interchain future a reality with their IBC protocol. Um, I see that Ethereum is also looking at how Cosmos solved it and they want to find some way to support this also for the different Ethereum layer twos. Um, there is now also growing regulatory pressure for blockchains like Ethereum to figure out a way to do these bridges between different layer twos, layer ones, and so on in a fully decentralized manner. Because if you're not fully decentralized in the future, you will be regulated as a financial intermediary, which is not what these, uh, what these builders want. So um, this internet of blockchain uh, and the ability to transact across chains in a trustless manner is of the utmost importance at the moment and really smart people are working on this. And yeah, so this is my, my vision of the future. So Cosmos, I'm familiar with it a little bit. Uh, could you explain uh, our listeners a little bit when you say Internet of Things, uh, when it comes to Atom, uh, how, how, how would you explain it? So um, I was mentioning the Internet of Blockchains. Uh, Internet of Things is yet another interesting um, evolution um, that is also deeply connected to blockchain. Um, in fact, um, the European Union is currently regulating how the Internet of Things and blockchain are going to work together. Um, that's maybe something that some people listening to this will be interested in. There is a new European law called the Data Act that makes provisions on how smart contracts need to function when they are used in the context of the Internet of Things. It's a very current, very interesting development for people. They should be checking it out. And the European Crypto Initiative that we mentioned in the beginning that I co-founded and I'm the vice president of, we're currently uh, developing and uh, talking to, um, we're developing positions and talking to, to lawmakers on how to improve this particular data act, which suffers from a bunch of flaws. Uh, but that's just an aside. Um, this idea of the internet of blockchains means that we will transition to a future where you are not locked into a single blockchain with your assets, 
And then if you want to transfer your assets from this blockchain to another blockchain, you either can't do it at all, or you need to go to an exchange where you sell, you know, your, your assets to some intermediary currency. And from this currency, then to these other assets, which are all centralized forms of transacting. Um, same goes for bridges that we have today, which if they do exist, they are often centralized bridges where there is some operator of these bridges, which in the future will also not really happen anymore, I think, because it's going to be a regulated business, uh, at least in Europe and most likely also in the United States. If you look at the current state of, of the crackdown on crypto, to, to, to put it like this. So uh, long story short, the Internet of Blockchains is this vision of being able to transact your assets between any blockchain or many, many blockchains in a fully trustless manner, just like you send a transaction today, let's say on from one Ethereum address to another, you could then just send assets from your, from an Ethereum wallet to, you know, a wallet from a blockchain on in the cosmos ecosystem, let's say osmosis, you could just send your assets there and it would be a trustless execution of this transaction, meaning there is no intermediary who could potentially censor it, who could potentially, you know, mess with it, um, who could potentially go insolvent in the moment that you use their bridge technology and the moment they go insolvent, your assets are, you know, just sort of part of the insolvency mess. So trustless means there is no way to sort of block this. So this is the Internet of Blockchains in short. If you ask me to explain to you Cosmos in detail, I have to disappoint you. I'm everything but That's a Cosmos right. expert. Um, they do have a protocol that is called the Internet, um, the IBC protocol, um, and it's called the Interblockchain something. I honestly, I don't, I don't even know what IBC stands for in specific detail. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting ecosystem to watch for sure. They are leading in some areas like trustless bridges and so on uh, when it comes to, uh, yeah, when it comes to this. Yeah, we, we've had a chat uh, from Torchin. I don't know if you're familiar with them at all, that they're building on top of, uh, on this protocol, uh, where you can actually exchange one, uh, you know, Ethereum with Bitcoin and whatnot, and anything that's on the Atom protocol that you can actually exchange. So. Uh, no, I, I, I've heard a bunch about it. It seems like an exciting thing. So let's let's talk about smart contracts next. So we, uh, you know, one of the crypto punks, Nick Zabos, proposed a smart contract in 1997. And uh, he gave a vending machine analogy, which is you go to a vending machine, you put your dollar in, you say, I want a Snicker bar. It gives you a Snicker bar. Your contract is done. He's like, this is what we're going to do on the smart contract. And later on with Ethereum became um, somewhat of a reality. Uh, we think it solves the problem of the middleman where it shrinks the middleman where you don't have to trust the financial sector. You don't have to trust a lot of different people, whether it's going to be Amazon, eBay in the future. Uh, can you give our listeners more insight into smart contract technology, what, what, what it does, what it enables us to do? If you're familiar with the concept of how blockchain works, a smart contract is pretty simple to understand. It's really just executable code on top of blockchain. 
Um, if you're not familiar with how blockchains work in detail, it see, seems probably very mysterious what, what smart contracts are. Um, if you boil it down to its essence, it's really just software. And what makes this software special is that it's not executed, you know, on a server in the Amazon uh, data center, or it's not uh, executed on your smartphone or on your laptop, but it's code that is being executed in a completely new environment. And this environment is the blockchain, which is essentially a distributed um, computer. That's how you could imagine it. So a blockchain is um, a distributed set of ledgers, um, of books, of records uh, that are being maintained by a multitude of agents, of nodes, as we call them. And these smart contracts are this special kind of software that is able to run on top of this distributed infrastructure. And they inherit one important property from this underlying blockchain technology, which in the space we refer to as immutability. And immutability means that once you've put some data into the blockchain, you cannot change it afterwards. It cannot be tampered with. So it's once you put it in there, it's going to be there forever, which can have good and bad consequences. And a smart contract is just special kind of data because it's data about software and you can execute the software and then essentially derive functionality such as um, and now we can look at some of the famous applications using smart contract technology and i think uh, some of the famous ones are for example uniswap mm -hmm. which is a very popular decentralized exchange um, and what's happening on Uniswap is that you can come with some cryptocurrency, let's say Ether, and uh, you can easily uh, swap it into another cryptocurrency. And uh, this sounds like something that people may know from existing exchanges that they are using, like Binance, for example, is a very famous exchange. FTX was a very famous exchange until recently. Coinbase is a famous exchange but they all work differently. They all rent service at something like Amazon or you know somewhere else where you can rent service. And this is where they run software that keeps track of offers and counter offers and then matches these. We call this an order book, okay? And the special thing about Uniswap is that there is no server, classical server involved in managing the order book that brings together an offer and a counter offer. And uh, the magic behind this decentralized form of exchanging assets um, is the smart contract. Uh, Uniswap came up with a way to essentially get rid of the concept of an order book um, and replace it with this concept of pools and it's called a constant function market maker. So you buy from a pool or you sell into a pool and you will always get um, a certain price from it that corresponds to the ratio of how many of these two assets are available in the pool um, that you're swapping right now. So it's an ingenious mechanism to allow for a decentralized and trustless form 
of exchanging one cryptocurrency into another cryptocurrency. Uh, another interesting application of smart contracts that we've seen successfully deployed at scale is Maker. And Maker or MakerDAO is um, a set of smart contracts that allow you to essentially um, turn uh, a given asset, like for example, again, Ether, into another asset um, in the form of taking out a loan against it. So in the MakerDAO example, you put in some ETH into some Ether in the MakerDAO smart contract and you receive an equivalent amount of DAI, which is the crypto, the crypto stablecoin um, produced by this, uh, by this system to your wallet. And what you've now done is you've turned, you've sort of lent your Ether to the system and borrowed digital dollars against it. And now, for example, instead of selling your Ether to buy a car, you can lend out your Ether, borrow US dollars and buy a car with it. And if Ether goes up in value now, you can repay the loan and uh, you've gotten your car for free, essentially, or not for free, but you've, you've benefited from the price increase of Ether as opposed to if you would have sold your Ether at the time where you needed the cash. So those are maybe the two biggest or two of the biggest applications of smart contracts that we that we are seeing today. Um, in the future, this concept can be and will be applied probably to many other different use cases, uh, in particular in finance. Because uh, in finance today, we just, you know, it's the easiest to apply these concepts. All you need to do is you need to keep track of some numbers. Uh, the case, the, the amount of scenarios that you need to manage in these smart contracts is, it's a lot, but it's still relatively limited. Um, will we see smart contracts be applied to more complex legal arrangements? Maybe but there is a natural limitation as well to how much you can actually sort of represent with these software-based contracts, smart contracts, um, and, and what you can't. So there will always be sort of room for the old style contract, the legal contracts, which are able to just much more flexibly um, regulate uh, certain, certain aspects of, of human interactions but uh, it's pretty impressive how far smart contract technology has already come in sort of rationalizing and standardizing certain economic transactions. Um, but yeah, mostly in finance because finance is relatively easy compared to other arrangements where we're using contracts today. Yeah, you brought up <clears throat> immutability. Um, one of the follow-up I want to have is, so I worked in the, I worked in the credit card industry for a long time, for about eight years or so. <clears throat> One of the things you can do with Visa, MasterCard, you have about 90-day window, 180-day window, something like in between that, where you can actually dispute charges if you have disagreement. So somebody sold you a product and service, you're not happy as a user, you can actually dispute it. Uh, is smart contract doing something to solve these disputes in the future? I know there's an immutability that's already part of the future here. Uh, so 
we can scale smart contracts? I think what's important to understand is that immutability is just the base layer. You can build mutability on top of immutability. Okay, mm. so that's really important. And this is already a standard um, usage pattern that we see um, in almost every big application of smart contracts. It's that um, while at the base layer, it's immutable and cannot be changed, you can deliberately program the ability to change stuff on top of it. Now that comes with some caveats. You can't change the history in a blockchain, but you can say that from now on, a certain functionality in your smart contract system will be superseded by a new set of smart contracts that have different functionality. So while your old functionality is still there because it's in fact immutable, it can never be removed. You can program your system in a way that it now doesn't rely on this old functionality anymore and uses a different set of contracts or routines that you've uploaded and installed on this Ethereum network. If we take Ethereum as an example here later on. So mutability is possible. It's just that at the foundational layer, it's immutable, right? And this is also the good way how it should be because otherwise we would never be able to update anything in the blockchain and we would be you know locked into the version one of some any application that we've that we've ever used that doesn't make sense so um this is how how it all works together and then um uh, what you just mentioned with chargebacks and credit cards and so on so what you're getting into is this element of um um, yeah, it's, it's a really good question that you're asking, let's say, because it's also what I related to, um, in the beginning with this data act that the EU is currently drafting for smart contract applications in the internet of things. It's exactly what the EU is concerned with, which is that, um, it can happen in the real world and happens often that two parties close a contract for some service and the counterparty, the consumer pays for that service. And then the service is rendered in a bad way or in a faulty way. So you don't get your money's worth as a consumer. So now you want some of your money back because you got scammed or it just turns out that the product that you bought sucks, right? And so for all these cases, the law has a clear set of rules of how to deal with it in almost any jurisdiction that is relevant. I can speak on, on behalf of Germany where we, I needed to study this for my, for my bar exam, uh, you know, many years ago, and it's, it's quite complex. How do you actually fix a broken contract? How do you fix the contract or how do you fix a relationship between two people? where the performance of at least one of the people involved in the contract wasn't as the people expected when they closed the contract. And of course, in the world of smart contracts, this is much, much more difficult to solve because you have, um, well, maybe sometimes this element of immutability, but even more broadly speaking, you have almost anonymous agents interacting with one another. If we do some trade on a blockchain, I might not know anything about you except your wallet address. 
and I don't have to, which is beautiful because blockchain gives so much trust that I don't have to know who you are. I still know that this particular transaction that we're doing is going to work because of the code powering it. However, there might still be some elements why I ultimately end up with a legal claim against you to give me back some of the money that I paid to you for some reason or another. And um, there are ways to evolve here. Um, there are projects, I'm going to name one, uh, it's called Kleros, which is a very old project already also in the space, relatively speaking. It started in 2017, I believe which is essentially an online or an on-chain court system, right? So um, if, if we're involved in a blockchain transaction and you perform badly, then in the future or even today, um, in some cases, I am able to file a claim with this on-chain court that is provided by this Kleros protocol. And then a jury or some other form of, of dispute, uh, dispute resolution mechanism could look at this and say, yeah, in fact, actually, uh, Florian has a claim here and he should get back X percent of the money paid. So that's, it sounds a little bit futuristic and it is because this is not yet so widely applicable, but in some cases, people are already using this dispute resolution mechanism to fix broken contracts. And I think going forward, we will see more and more of this because it's indeed a fundamental element of human interaction that things fail, things don't go as expected. And there's only so much that you can anticipate in the core logic of a smart contract. And so there are advantages to being able to say, okay, we're subjecting this particular transaction to the jurisdiction of this on-chain court. And then if you've done that beforehand, and that's very important, you have to have decided this beforehand that in case of a dispute, this is your way to resolve the dispute. But if you've done that, then you will have the ability to, to file claims and have um, some third party actually look at this and, and hopefully rule in your favor as a consumer or as a contractual party in general. Got it. We'll put that in the show notes, the <clears throat> protocol you mentioned. Uh, what smart contract protocol excites you the most? I know you mentioned Ethereum quite a lot. Anything else outside of that that excites you? Like, oh, man, they're doing wonderful work. I'm going to take this opportunity to show my own project for a little bit, which okay. is um, Common Ground, where we're actually concerned with the fact that today, most people still have a hard time to figure out how to actually use smart contracts and how to interact with them because most people don't have a degree in computer science. They may, maybe they are artists who are in the creative industry. Maybe they are fascinated by, you know, digital art, digital collectibles, new forms of distribution, uh, new forms of building communities. And so um, what really excites me and that's why I'm building common ground is to make this technology more accessible to people. And so the reason we started common ground originally is because we realized, okay, people 
are launching tokens into this world like crazy. Mm -hmm. So if you um, scan the Ethereum blockchain, you will find out that there are tens, maybe even hundreds of millions of different tokens mm -hmm. that exist on this blockchain. Um, maybe 10,000 of them are being tracked on something like CoinMarketCap or CoinGecko, which are famous uh, sort of, you know, coin price chart websites. Mm -hmm. But then a vast majority of them you've never heard and you don't even know that they exist. And what we've realized is that these token smart contracts, in particular NFT contracts, so contracts for digital collectibles, they are in a sense social graphs. They are, in a sense, a way how humans define a connection between them. Sort of an analogous to the phone book, where every person that has a smartphone has a phone book inside with some numbers. And in 2007 or 2008, it was the founders of WhatsApp who understood that, hey, we could actually build an app where you could send a short message through this app on everybody in your phone book that also has this app. And now WhatsApp really replaced, you know, the protocol we used before that, which was SMS or short message services, uh, because it was much cheaper, it was global, it was instant, it had all these benefits. And we realized that in a sense, smart contracts are a new social graph technology that uh, connects everybody who has some of these tokens of a particular contract on their wallet. And so we decided to build a social network, a communication platform around exactly this concept that allows everybody who has the app to message everybody else uh, that also has the app if they are connected through one of these millions of tokens out there. So, that is truly what I'm obsessed with uh, at the moment to actually understand how can we build new social interactions around this new social graph that we see emerging. And the beauty here is, is that the social graph is fundamentally open to everybody. It's not like the Facebook social graph that is owned by Mark Zuckerberg. It's not like the Twitter social graph that is owned by Elon Musk. It's not like the TikTok social graph that is owned by the Chinese government but it's actually a social graph that is owned by nobody and, and therefore by everybody. It's on an open immutable database. And so this is why one of the aspects that really excites me about crypto and web three, it's that it's such a fundamental change in, in all of these aspects of how we interact online. And so that would be my answer to your question. Awesome. No, that's great. <laughs> one, of, one of the things that we talked about in the past is uh, Quay used to be in the music industry that <clears throat> Taylor Swift sells, you know, uh, goes up. My concert's going to start on January 1st. You know, the, the tickets go on sale and she sells out. Let's say she makes $100 million. And anything that sells on the, on this, on the secondhand market the scalpers make money or people, other people make money. And I know one of the things the smart contract can do is allow Taylor Swift to code in there. Anytime the resale of this ticket, I make 80% of that, right? So she, in theory, can make 100 million plus another, let's say another 100 million sales, 80 million. So uh, what, what will it take 
for like use cases like like these because anybody can look at it saying of course it makes sense i don't want to pay scalper or either pay taylor swift or whoever the artist you want to support you know maybe taylor swift has a lot of money already maybe some artist who you know only makes a hundred thousand a year and uh People want to support them. What do you think gonna need to happen in the smart contract place where this becomes some sort of common thing where scalpers are not making the money the artist actually is? So I think you're asking the most important question of all, right? Which is how do we onboard the rest of the world into this amazing system? Yep. And you know, for Taylor Swift tickets to be traded on the blockchain. Um, that would require everybody who wants to acquire or sell such a ticket to possess a wallet and to possess some cryptocurrency. And making this happen is extremely hard because the only way today to acquire cryptocurrency is to purchase it at a centralized exchange. And to get an account at a centralized exchange you need to do a lot of things that are very complicated, very scary, and very boring. And uh, most people will not be willing to do this for good reason. And so we need to find different ways to bring people into the system. And there are interesting ways to do this. There is, for example, this idea of earning cryptocurrency. So actually, instead of you having to go out and buy it, you just get it for something that you do that is valuable, right? Uh, another way to do it is through credit lines. So it could be that your friend has some crypto and you don't, and they can just tell you to download an app that contains a wallet, and then they can give you a credit line, which allows you to spend crypto instantly. And it's actually your friend uh, sort of lending you this crypto. And there are other concepts um, that all sort of circumvent this problem of forcing people to go through centralized exchanges to acquire their initial stake in the system, right? And then I think the other element is the concept of wallets, which is very foreign to people um, for good reason, because it requires you to take care of private keys. Nobody knows what a private key is. And this technology needs to become much simpler to use, uh, also much safer to use uh, without you know, having to acquire hardware wallets and those sorts of things in order to scale to the mass market. And until we haven't figured this out, it's probably going to stay a niche phenomenon. Because if everything that you do is fully centralized in your, in your supply chain, there's not really a need for blockchain in it. It just makes it slow and expensive. Mm -hmm. So blockchain really makes sense when we look at this self-custodial ownership paradigm. So this world where everybody is able to take care of crypto assets themselves with their own self-custodial wallet. But this comes with the technical challenges I just explained. So I think until we don't figure this out, this is not going to be able to really scale to, to, to the uh, user numbers that we're all hoping for eventually. Yeah. So I worked for an NFT exchange, non-fungible token exchange. And when onboarding artists, the skepticism that came with 
uh, artists trying to figure out some type of NFT strategy with the music they were releasing or the art they were releasing was very difficult. And so I relate to what you're saying because I've seen it. I've, I've been a part of it and it's it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to, oh, sorry about that, go ahead. No, please. Oh, I wanted to shift a little bit and kind of get into your legal brain. I know you have the technological side of the brain and the legal side of the brain. So kind of want to ask you a question. Um, so anyone who has done business for a while knows that disputes arise in business transactions. For a smart contracts to go mainstream, they need to become legally binding. How can smart contracts be made legally binding and enforceable? That is a great question. And I think it um, sort of comes from a certain, yeah, badly communicated, truly, um, sort of uh, aspect of what smart contracts actually are. I don't think people like me or other people have done you much of a favor uh, in this regard, because um, at least I can say that for the first few years when I was researching smart contracts, I very much talked about this concept in a way where it's like, yeah, you have legal contracts and you have smart contracts and they are both contracts, but one works with software and the other one works with, you know, ink on, on dead trees. Right. And um, in fact, it isn't so. So in, in reality, a smart contract is never going to be, a contract of the kind that legal contracts fundamentally are. It's just two different things. So what a smart contract does is it can automate certain transactions. And these transactions typically are part of a larger agreement or contract, as you could say, between, between parties. So if, for example, you're, you're an artist and you're, um, you're doing an NFT drop, right? You release a new album, you have an NFT strategy that you think makes sense. And then I can go to your website and I can click a mint button. And if I click that mint button and my MetaMask pops up and then I say, okay, check, 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 transfer, you know, one ETH uh, to, to this website. I click, okay, totally worth one ETH. I want to, I want to have this special, you know, a uh, limited edition uh, NFT drop from the artist. Um, I click OK, and then I have this NFT. So now what happened, right? Um, I interacted with you through a smart contract. Um, I minted an NFT on your website. Now I paid you some cryptocurrency for it. And now your question could be, how can we make this smart contract legal? Um, it's as a lawyer, that's not really the question you would ask, I believe, because what really happened is that what you did is you and me, we closed a sales contract, a legal sales contract. And although I never signed my signature with ink under a piece of paper, we still closed that contract. Just like when I order an Uber on the Uber app by pressing a button, I'm closing a transportation contract with the company for which the Uber driver works. I never wet ink signed a transportation contract, but in fact, there is a transportation contract 
legally speaking, in the background. And the same is happening when I meant an NFT on an artist's website. There's a sales contract um, that I'm closing with this artist. And then some element of the sales contract is automated and facilitated by the smart contract, which is the delivery and maybe even the creation of the thing that I'm buying. But that doesn't constitute the whole sales contract. The whole sales contract is broader and it comes with a whole baggage of what the law defines around, for example, uh, a bad performance of this contract. So if the NFT that um, I'm, I'm receiving is, for example, not the NFT that you've been advertising on your website, then you've clearly rendered, uh, you know, uh, your performance or your, your, your duties of the contract in a bad way. And now because there is a sales contract, I have a legal claim against you based on the sales contract to say, hey, take back your faulty NFT and give me back my money because according to our sales contract, you've owed me something else. And now I want to step back from this contract because of this. So that would be my, my sort of first answer, um, just to disambiguate what is what. Um, there is still, I think, a very justified element to your question, which is that are there situations where smart contracts are actually breaching the law? And how can we deal with the situation? And this is very much uh, the case. This can happen often. For example, um, we have had a situation um, I th about a year ago where um, some smart contract was being used by North Korea to launder money. And what happened is that North Korea is active in hacking and exploiting smart contracts. At least that's the rumors. I mean, I, I haven't talked to Kim, <laughs> Kim personally. I don't know if he's doing this, but let's assume they do this. And then the question is, how do you launder this illegitimate money into legitimate money? And there were smart contracts um, being used to sort of do these sorts of laundering transactions. And now um, the OFAC, which is a US authority, has declared these particular smart contracts under certain smart contract addresses illegal. And so now these smart contracts are illegal to use. And if you use them, uh, your wallets that interacted with these contracts will basically come onto a ban list and no exchange in the world will allow you to deposit the money that was on these, on these wallets um, anymore. So effectively you sit on, on worthless money. And so um, there is a lot to be said about the legality of smart contracts, but it does not stem from this sort of fundamental element of, oh, well, it's now a smart contract. We need to recognize them by definition in the law. That's not the problem. They are just software that facilitate transactions. Um, but of course, smart contracts can be used to do things that under the, in the eyes of the law today um, or potentially in the future will be considered illegal. Um, such as, for example, now with the EU and the Data Act that they are proposing, which is, again, this regulation for the application of smart contracts in the context of the Internet of Things, 
where they say every smart contract that is facilitating data transmission between things, so, you know, different sort of little computers and gadgets, you know, deployed in the real world somewhere, need to contain code that allows the operator of these smart contracts to stop these smart contracts, to interrupt them and actually make them dysfunctional. And so if you would deploy smart contracts without this routine, without this functionality in the wild, you would be breaching the law in Europe, right? And so there will be more and more regulation that limits your ability to do things with smart contracts. There's other regulation that says if you're selling tokens um, on the blockchain and you're selling for more than a million dollars, you need permission by the financial market authority to actually make these sales. And again, smart contracts who, who don't have the permission to operate in this way would again be illegal. But important is they weren't illegal in the first place. They have been made, they are being made illegal now by like voluntarily by the regulator because they want to prevent people from doing certain things uh, in, in the market. <coughs> Got it. We want to touch upon use cases a little bit. <clears throat> you mentioned, you know, we need to have for mass adoption, we need to have people have wallets, uh, understand wallets, right? That's what we're trying to do, help, help people understand this. So we talked about some of the things like, you know, you got the decentralized finance, we're lending, borrowing. Uh, we talked about NFTs. Um, some of the things that I feel like, you know, you got the Uber that takes about 30% of the driver's margin away, or you got Airbnb, that's another 25, 30% of the margin from the person who's renting their house. Uh, do you see in the future where we're actually able to do these things uh, as far as, you know, having Uber, Airbnb on smart contracts where it actually really shrinks the middleman's margin from, you know, 30% to, let's say, less than, you know, 1%? That's an interesting question. And it's actually um, not a stupid question because this has been the declared vision of people in this space um, in the very early days of, of this ecosystem. I remember um, I was on DEFCON 1 in London in 2015, and there was a, a, a project that later on became very big and then imploded and, and all these, you know, typical uh, early day things, um, who uh, call itself the Universal Sharing Network. And they wanted to build exactly this, um, as a, an ability to share a ride, an ability to share an apartment, an ability to share really any resource without this central intermediary that is capturing transaction fees uh, and then, you know, becoming monopolistic, driving all competitors out of the market. And then just like Uber did it, in fact, I think in the US and other places, increasing rates like crazy. And um, I think there's a bunch of problems with this idea, not, not the least because, um, you know, there's a lot of infrastructure involved in running a service like Uber. Sure. It's not just 
the trend, the payment transaction in the middle, uh, where you could have a smart contract system taking care of it, you need an app. And this app needs to be developed by someone. It needs to be deployed on some app store where people can get it from. It needs um, a back end. So an element that is not suitable for a blockchain, but something that requires huge server farms to execute algorithms to match a driver and uh, a guest. Right, so the calculations that Uber does in the background to find the right guy or a woman for you that is going to give you a ride is a highly complex operation, which is very compute intensive and is not suitable to be happening on a blockchain. And so there are many layers to an application, also like Airbnb and so on that are not fundamentally decentralizable at the moment. Maybe in some future version of the universe this could happen, but with today's technology, you wouldn't know how to do it. So that doesn't mean that you cannot fundamentally disrupt the ride-sharing market with blockchain technology. I think you can. It's just people shouldn't fool themselves in how easy that is supposedly going to happen. And um, one element that I think will be very disruptive to the ride-sharing market, for example, is the ability for users to own their identity. So if an Uber driver owns their identity as opposed to Uber owning owning the identity of the driver, then the driver can take their reputation and everything that they earned in the Uber app and take it to the Lyft app. And then if Uber, um, you know, does a shitty thing because they, whatever, give you a lower cut as a driver, you'd be like, well, okay, screw you, Uber. I'm driving for Lyft now, and I have zero onboarding cost when going to Lyft because I can take my reputation as a great driver from the Uber app, and I have it instantly in the Lyft app. And this is something that blockchain allows you to do And it's all based on this concept of self-sovereign identities. So this idea that not Uber, the operator, owns your data and identity, but you as an individual user of this app own the identity. And this is something that I think we will see in the future, uh, at least in Europe, because Europe will enforce this with regulation. The sad thing, of course, is that they may not enforce this to happen on blockchains. Uh, We don't really know yet how this will happen. Um, Can you introduce the same concept without the help of the regulator in a bottom-up approach? I think that's also possible. But um, I think the blockchain space hasn't found the recipe yet to do it. And that's actually one of the fundamental issues I am working on with my common ground project that I was mentioning before, which is where we have a similar problem. We want to provide a a social app for people to interact with based on Web3 things like tokens, wallets, all these things. But to build a real social app, it requires a lot of infrastructure. You need servers, you need backends, you need apps 
that need to be deployed. You need a lot of things that don't happen on a blockchain. The only thing that happens on the blockchain is a tiny part. It's the social graph. It's this, hey, I am connected with you. We are friends. This information you can store on a blockchain. But everything else, what does the app look like? What do interactions look like that we have? The graphical user interface, um, a recommendation algorithm for who to follow, all these things. This is not on a blockchain. This is somewhere else. So who is operating these servers? Who does that? And so um, the solution that we've come up with is this idea of a cooperative. Okay, and cooperatives are not new. They've been around for at least 100 years, probably longer. And um, I think what we're going to see, that's what we're doing at Common Ground. And I think this is something we've already seen emerge since around 2014, also in the US, is this concept of platform cooperatives. And I think platform cooperatives are in principle a really, really good idea. But they had, I think, a hard time taking off in the past. And I think with the help of blockchain and crypto, Web3, these cooperatives are now getting a new shot at disrupting the sharing economy. Because what makes total sense to me is that all the taxi drivers in New York own their own Uber clone. They are literally the shareholders of the app that they use to make rides. Why does it have to be some person in Silicon Valley that is deploying this commodity infrastructure for these drivers? I think every big city, every major city can have its own cooperative of drivers um, that is running the infrastructure necessary to offer such a service. And these cooperatives can be fundamentally supercharged and enhanced with the help of tokenization, with the help of Web3 identities and reputation and all these nice things that you get. I just don't think that these highly complex systems can be solved with decentralized technology and blockchain in isolation. To me, that's a pipe dream and we're far away from getting there. And so we need an intermediate solution. And to me, that's cooperatives. And that's why um, I'm personally very excited about these. And, and uh, we're, we're doing this ourselves at Common Ground to essentially build a Facebook, let's say, or a WhatsApp that is owned by the users of Facebook and not by Mark Zuckerberg. And I find this um, beautiful. And I hope that this model will succeed. Um, I think it would be really good for the people if they don't have to rely on Elon Musk's whatever idea of free speech, but they can actually define themselves what free speech is for them. And maybe we don't want one big platform that tells us what the world is supposed to look like. Maybe it's more natural to have multiple platforms and they're owned by groups of people that share the same values. So that would be my long and winding answer to your very good question. Complex, but optimistic, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, so we're, we're at this. I, yeah, I mean, we can have one or two more questions, but I, at some point I need to jump on. Yeah, definitely. And wrapping it up right now, um, you, you were thinking my mind, Florian. So it is time for the lightning round. Are you ready to accept that challenge? All right, let's, let's lighten it up. Okay. What's the last show you binged?
Wow, this answer is taking way too long. You see that I haven't been a show in ages. Honestly, I don't remember. This is so lame. We'll, we'll do pass. <laughs> um, I think I think I think I binged uh, I binged Peaky Blinders on on a on a flight recently. I think on my iPad. Okay, judges, we will accept that answer. <laughs> Next question: Text or talk? Talk. Coffee or tea? Coffee. iOS or Android? iOS. Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk? Elon Musk. What's on your nightstand right now? Um, a really interesting book about the evolution of consciousness. What's your favorite NFT or not? CryptoPunks. What's one word that comes to mind when you think about crypto? Coordination. Lightning round completed. Florian, thank you for joining us for another edition of So Why Crypto. Um, would you like to give any information where people can find you? Any last thoughts that you would like to share with anyone? Sure. So uh, I would love for people to, um, of course, follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm sure you can put the link in the description. Uh, I would also love for people to check out Common Ground um, if they are interested in a Web3 native community platform. And of course, uh, I would love for people to support our advocacy work at the European Crypto Initiative. So please check all of these out. Uh, follow us on Twitter, send us a message, send me a message. Uh, I'm always open to, to, I don't know, talk and help. Florian, thank you again. And we appreciate the conversation. Uh, for more information, so why crypto on everything? That's Twitter, uh, website, YouTube, and uh, please subscribe to our YouTube channel for myself, Quay, and Vishal. Thank, Thank you. So why crypto? So why crypto? Why crypto? So why crypto? So why crypto? Featuring Vishal and Quay. Quay.